John 3.16, and our topic is, we're looking at, uh, of course, Christ's exposition of the gospel, and we're going into a lot of detail, and we've come to our final topic, uh, our fourth sermon, the purpose of faith in Christ. The purpose of faith in Christ, and we'll look at that in detail. And I'll start reading at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we're going to look at those two things today, perish and everlasting life. That will be our focus this afternoon. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, that the world through him might be saved. So, the purpose of faith in Christ. God's love of his people all over the world is the reason that he sent his son to, son to die on the cross and rise from the dead. And we've seen that this perfect salvation is obtained solely, is grasped solely by faith, or through faith. The purpose of faith in the Savior is noted toward the end of verse 16. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What our Lord accomplished for believers is presented both negatively, what believers are saved from, and positively. For instead of judgment and condemnation, believers possess eternal life. Well, let's look at the first one, the elim elimination of judgment and wrath. The word should not perish must be interpreted according to the analogy of Scripture. If we look at what the judgment of unbelievers involves, these words cannot mean should not be annihilated. Okay? The Bible doesn't teach annihilationism. It doesn't teach that at the final judgment, believers cease to exist. And you'll see that in a moment more clearly. To punish, to perish refers to total, full, eternal rejection by God for unrepentant sin and the real guilt that attends it. And it is described in a number of ways in Scripture, number one. It is described as death and the second death. God warned Adam that disobedience to his command would surely result in death. And it's emphatic in Hebrews, Genesis 2.17. This refers to spiritual death and resulted in Adam and Eve being excluded from Eden. Adam was denied the right to eat from the tree of life, for by disobeying the covenant of works, he could no longer achieve eternal glorified life by personal obedience. Genesis 3.22-24 If Adam had not sinned, if he had obeyed, a period of time would have come when he would have been granted the right to eat of the tree of, of life and would have had glorified life. But that he was excluded, kicked out of the garden. The entrance to the garden was guarded by angels with swords. It also brought physical death into the world. All the horrible negative effects of the fall, such as disease, birth defects, old age, death, are the result of sin. It also leads to the second death that occurs at the final judgment, when both the souls and resurrected bodies of unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 11a, 12a, and 13 to 15. Then I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
and anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Everyone who believes in Christ has his name written in the book of life. All of their sin and guilt has been paid for in full by Jesus Christ. And they are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Uh, Zechariah 3, 3 to 4, Romans 4, 11 to 13, Galatians 5, 5, Philippians 3, 9, and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Forgiven and reconciled, they stand before the judge justified, not in themselves, not because of anything that we've done, but in Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation for their sins and their advocate with the Father. 1 John 2, 1 and following, Romans 3, 22 to 26 and 5, 1. The last judgment then has no terrors for us, for believers, for those who, thanks to the grace that flows from the cross, are no longer in Adam, but are now in Christ. John 3, 36 and 5, 24. Number two, those who do not believe are condemned. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. John 3.18 The word condemn in this context is forensic, that is, it is the language of a court. For believers there is no condemnation, Romans 8.1, because Jesus was condemned in their place. Their guilt and liability of punishment was imputed to Christ on the cross. But the unbeliever is under condemnation this very moment. Because he has broken God's law and he stands guilty. Without faith in the Savior, he is a child of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. The curse of an infinitely holy and righteous God who hates him with a perfect hatred, judicially rests upon him. Those who hear the gospel message and reject it greatly increase their guilt, for their, they account the sinless Savior, the Son of the living God, as worthless. The guilty verdict is in effect for all living unbelievers right now, even though the public declaration of their guilt occurs at the final judgment. Guilty. Right now. Guilty. Whether you're aware of it or not. If you don't believe in Christ, you're guilty right now. You're under condemnation right now, this very moment. Number three. Unbelievers, Jesus says, will perish. Apala, apala, apalumi. The idea here is not annihilation, as I said, or extinction, but total ruin or destruction. Unbelievers are vessels of wrath made for destruction, Romans 9.22. At the second coming, unbelievers will receive eternal destruction. Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 1.7-9, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Unbelievers are guilty of rejecting Christ. They set their minds on earthly things. Therefore, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ and will in the end suffer eternal devastating destruction. Philippians 3.18-19 The reprobate are committed unbelievers who are the vessels of wrath made for destruction. The severity of the punishment awaiting unbelievers is shocking and terrifying. Okay, this is certainly not one of my favorite doctrines, but it's taught in the Bible. We have to look at it. We have to study it. But it is totally just, for they are guilty, wicked, enemies of Yahweh. This destruction occurs away from the Lord's face, and thus occurs in the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Matthew 8, 12, 22, 13, 24, 51, 25, 30, Luke 13, 28. They love the darkness rather than the light, John 3, 19. During their earthly life, when they might have walked in the light, thus they have brought upon themselves damnation, destruction from the face of the Lord. They have no light at all. Outside of God's heavenly city of paradise are dogs, unbelievers, sorcerers, and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Revelation 22, 14-15. Revelation 20, verse 10. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A pleasant doctrine? No. Absolutely true? Yes. Number four. The judgment of unbelievers is called the curse of the law, Galatians 3, 10, and 13. God pronounces a curse on everyone who violates his law and makes that pronouncement of doom an eternal reality. The curses of the covenant that occur in this life are only a small foretaste of the everlasting punishment, Matthew 25, 46, that is to come to the soul at death, Luke 16, 22 to 24. And the soul and the body at the final judgment, John 5, 29, Matthew 10, 28, 25, 31, 41 to 46. The curse involves the fire that will never be quenched, Mark 9, 45. The worm that never dies, Mark 9, 46. Everlasting chains, Jude 6. The blackness of darkness forever, Jude 13. Eternal torment, Revelation 14, 10. Where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 22, 13. By the way, all of this stuff comes directly from the lips of Christ. So if you have a problem with this and think it's demented, uh, you can go talk to Christ about it on the Day of Judgment. The only way to eliminate this terrifying curse is to look to Christ by faith, who endured the curse in full in our place. Vicarious atonement. Galatians 3.13 He took the handwriting of requirements that was against us, and he nailed it to the cross. Colossians 2.14 but God takes all rebels against his throne and he casts them into the fire of eternal darkness. He places them into the arms of destruction. Now the subject of hell, the lake of fire, and eternal punishment is very troubling and very unpleasant. I come from a family of unbelievers. I'm the only Christian I know among my family, so it's not a, certainly not pleasant for me. Christians today generally avoid it, and they attempt to present the gospel only in positive terms. You know, the old Joel Olstein. Well, I don't talk about hell. Yeah, it's in the Bible. I don't talk about it. I have a positive ministry. I talk about getting rich and having whiter teeth. Oh, I don't want to talk about the cross either. That's, that's kind of negative. In fact, in many circles, Christianity is set forth in a hedonistic, materialistic manner as a way to get health, wealth, and positive affirming thoughts. And by the way, the preachers that do this and the churches that do this, they're huge. Because that's what people want to hear. They don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about hell. They don't want to hear doctrine. But if we study the teachings of Jesus, he spoke about hell. He spoke about hell and eternal punishment all the time. In fact, he spoke about it more than all the prophets and apostles combined. Did you know that? Almost all the teaching we have about hell comes from Jesus. For the loving Savior, it was a crucial element of gospel preaching. Yet it is still common for people 
to see the doctrine of hell as absurdly harsh and barbaric. But such people obviously do not understand the infinite holiness and righteousness of God. Without an understanding of Yahweh's holiness, people view sin and rebellion against God as a minor issue. It's a light thing. Oh, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if I want to go to a bathhouse and have sodomy? What's the big deal if I want to be a whore and fornicate? What's the big deal if I want to shoot heroin? It's no big deal. God's a God of love. He, he overlooks my sins. No. God is holy and righteous. And the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, is emphasized far more than the love of God in the Bible. But our Lord knows better, and we must pay close attention to what he says. The doctrine of God's infinite holiness and punishment that sin justly deserves helps us understand the horrors and the agony of the cross. He didn't send Jesus to the cross for effect. He did it because that was the only way to justify sinners. He had to endure the, the curse of the law. He had to endure the hell that we deserve. He had to endure the outer darkness that we all deserve in our place. It shows everyone who is not a Christian the sobering trouble and predicament they are in. To ignore Jesus Christ and his precious gospel is to choose hell and eternal punishment. Do not be influenced by the antinomianism and careless spirit of this age. But save yourself from this exceptionally wicked and perverse generation. Things have gotten so wicked. I mean, when I was in high school, back in the 70s, I graduated in 75, if you were a sodomite, you kept it a big, big secret. Nowadays, people brag about it, and they openly practice it. There's no shame involved with sin anymore. People revel in it. They love it, and they mock God, and they spit on his law. Well, that's the negative. Let's look at the gift of eternal life. The positive result of faith in Christ is the possession of eternal or everlasting life. John 3.15, it's stated exactly the same in 16b, um, and then it's stated in the terms in a be saved in 17c. The expression eternal life or life eternal or everlasting, za'i, aonios, is found three times in Matthew, 1916, 29, and 2546, twice in Mark, 1016 and 30, three times in Luke, 1025, 18, 18 and 30, and 17 times in John's Gospel, and I won't read them all. There's a whole bunch of them. 17 times. It is found also throughout the whole New Testament, Acts 13, 46 and 48, Romans 2, 7, 5, 21, 6, 22 and 23, Galatians 6, 8, 1 Timothy 1, 16, 6, 12 and 6, 19, Titus 1, 2, 3, 7, 1 John 1, 2, 225, 3.15, 5.11, and 13 to 20, and Jude 21. Over half of the occurrences of this expression are found, are used in Johannine uh, uh, context. They're, they're used by the Apostle John. So over half. So John really likes to talk about eternal life. The words eternal, everlasting, or forever in both Hebrew and Greek are defined by the context. Sometimes they can refer to an age or a period of time that does not last throughout all eternity. In Deuteronomy 15, 17, for example, your servant forever refers to the lifetime of the servant. He'll be your servant until he dies. In addition, 
the everlasting hills of Genesis 49:26 refer to a very long geological age of these hills. Because God's going to recreate the earth when Christ returns. When these words are applied to God's promises and Christ's salvation, they are used in a literal, absolute, and never-ending sense. The word eternal as an eternal life refers to an unending duration of time. Remember, for God, there is no time. Time only exists for us. The salvation that Christ achieved is perfect and eternal. Its foundation can never be altered or overturned. Its, effects abide, it affects, its effect abides forever and ever, without end. Now, the word life refers to the quality or state of blessedness that all true Christians receive. As the word death, as a state of unbelievers, is comprehensive and multifaceted, the word life for believers is exceptionally rich. There are a number of things to consider about this eternal life or eternal salvation, Hebrews 5.9, redemption, Hebrews 9.12, and inheritance, Hebrews 9.15. And we're just going to scratch the surface. We'll be very brief. Number one, this special salvific life is the current possession of the believer right now, even though the full experience of the blessings of salvation are yet future. And Christ emphasizes that, especially in the Gospel of John. In John 3, 15 and 16, the verb have, as in have eternal life, is in the present tense. Our Lord emphasizes this truth in John 5, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, passed from death unto life. The perfect tense, oh, 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 excuse me, has, present tense, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed, perfect tense, from death into life. So present tense, then perfect tense. What is the significance of the perfect tense? The perfect tense indicates that salvation is possessed in the present and the state, state, safe state continues on into the future. So it's not, I'm saved today, but I might not be saved tomorrow. No, you're saved and you continue to be saved. A believer is in an entirely new position before God. He has moved from condemnation and death unto life. We are completely justified, declared righteous in the heavenly court by God, and forgiven all of our sins the moment we believe. It is as though Christ pulled us out of the jaws of hell and seated us positionally at his right hand in heaven. That big, that big gulf, you know, there's a big gulf between saved and unsaved, between heaven and hell. And Christ pulls us from one side to the other by his grace, by his death, by his blood. Number two. This salvation will be more fully experienced when our physical bodies die and our souls go to be with Jesus in heaven. In our current state as Christians, the power of sin over us has been broken because of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, Romans chapter 6. But we still must fight the flesh, the old man, the body of sin. I didn't have time to look up the references, but those are all biblical terms. And Paul talks, especially in Romans 7, read about Paul, you know, I want to I be like this, I want to do this, and I end up doing that what I hate. Why? Because of the flesh, the sinful flesh. We have the joy of salvation, yet our life is one of struggle, conflict, temptations, and persecution. But at death, the believer's soul goes straight to heaven to behold the face of God. The trials and the sufferings of the present life are no more. Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the, blessed are the dead 
who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Physical death, Paul says, cannot separate us from the love of God. Romans 8.38 and following. Thus Paul could say that for him to die is gain. Philippians 1.21, look, it's better for me to die and go be with Christ and go to heaven. But, you know, I desire to stay here and help the ministry, help, help you guys out. But it, it's better for me if I die. For to depart with Christ is far better, and to be with Christ is far better. And that's Philippians 1.23. He describes this blessed state as being at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. Our laborious toll on the fallen earth and the hardships that attend it, including persecutions, are a thing of the past. Good works of Christians follow them, for what they have done for Jesus and his kingdom endures forever. Thus Paul instructs us, 1 Corinthians 58, 15, 58. And this is a passage we should all memorize. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What a great passage. Our Lord's words to his disciples who would all die by Roman persecution, except John. They all died in violent ways. Are comforting. John 14, 1-4. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And you, uh, you know. And that way, you know. As our high priest, who has achieved a perfect redemption, Jesus entered heaven as the ascent, at the ascension as our forerunner, our proxy, our representative. He achieved, and therefore he claims the right of entrance for all his believing members. Our lives are hid with Christ and God, Colossians 3.3. 3. So death is an unpleasant thing. You get old, you fall apart, your bodies fall apart. You may suffer. But hang in there, you're going to go to heaven. Number three. We experience eternal life in the fullest sense, beginning at the second coming when Jesus returns and our dead bodies are resurrected and glorified. 1 Corinthians 15, 35-58. And here's just a few. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 52b, 53, 54, and 57. And by the way, a beautiful proof text against full, the full preterist heresy, a damnable heresy. The essence of our future blessedness is always to be together with the Lord in perfect fellowship and communion. John twelve twenty six, fourteen three, uh, fourteen three. Oh wait, John, ooh, I wrote this down wrong. Fourteen three and uh, seventeen twenty four. Second Corinthians five eight, Philippians one twenty three, First Thessalonians four seventeen five ten, First John three two. But the salvation and the blessings that Jesus achieved are not limited to heaven. Christ came to save the whole man. The Bible emphasizes this. Body and soul. And the whole earth, which is a very physical place, 
See Romans 8, uh, 19 to 22 and Revelation 21, 1 to 7. The whole earth will be saved, redeemed. The effects of the fall will be gone forever. The Bible does not teach or advocate Gnosticism or Neoplatonism, which is this idea that anything made out of material, physical substance, is intrinsically inferior or bad. defective somehow. Due to Christ's work, our physical bodies will be raised up and glorified. They will be spiritual, immortal, perfect, and unable to be tempted by sin. They're not spirits. They'll be spiritual. Spiritual modifies your physical body, make, means you're going to be obedient to God 100% of the time. You'll be glorified. You won't be tempted by sin anymore. But you will have a physical body. Now, it is certainly true that in this age, while we await the second coming, our focus is directed toward heaven where our treasure is, Matthew 6, 20 and 19, 21, and our precious Lord sits at the right hand of God, Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. But when Jesus returns, the whole church comes with him to live on a glorified, perfected earth, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 10, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17, Revelation 21, 2 to 5. The meek will literally inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. Christians will sit down as guests with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Matthew 8, 11, and they will enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb. Matthew 22, 3-12. And they will eat and drink at Christ's table. Luke twenty-two thirty. 30. In the here and now, we are aliens in this fallen world, and this current world order hates us and wants to kill us. Philippians three twenty, Hebrews 11, 13-16, 1 John 2, 15-17. But when the glorified Savior returns, non-Christians are cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14-15, and excluded from the holy city. Revelation 21, 8, 22, 15, Matthew 25, 41, etc. So Christians can live in perfect peace and fellowship. Although the visions of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city that comes to earth, and the blessed state of the new heavens and the new earth, given in the final chapters of the book of Revelation, are not meant to be taken literally. I'm not saying they are. You're not going to have a city that's a perfect cube that's 2,000 miles in each direction. <laughs> Nevertheless, the truths that they set forth are clear. The earth will be recreated, renewed, and boosted to its highest glory for us to enjoy. And it's going to be nice. You could, you know, no more mosquitoes. No more wasps stinging you. No more disease. No more death. No more sorrow. No more pain. It is certainly true that as believers we possess salvation and eternal life, regeneration, justification, definitive sanctification, and adoption as sons. Right now! Right now you possess all that! But our final glorification awaits the second advent. Then our salvation, which gives us peace and fellowship, in the present will be unhindered. It will be richer, richer deeper, more profound and blessed than it ever was in our current lives uh, or the fallen, current fallen earth. For it cannot be disturbed by sin or the sinful nature. It can no longer be interrupted by distance or minds that wander due to our fallen state. Now we can behold God by looking into the mirror of divine revelation. We can only look at God through the mirror of scripture. We look by faith, not by sight. But when Jesus returns, we shall be face to face with Christ and we shall behold God with glorified eyes and minds that will possess a knowledge unfettered by sin and the fall. 
know, you see these kids, you see people and they're a genius and they can play Mozart and Chopin and they can do uh, complex trigonometry and all this stuff and they're 10 years old. Well, we'll all be like that after the fall's gone. We'll all be geniuses. We will behold the Lord as his perfected saints directly, immediately, unambiguously, and purely. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So I hope you see how glorious this is, how amazing it is. We can't fathom it. Paul, Paul says we can't even imagine, we can't fathom it. He says that in Romans. The things that, are, that God has in store for us, the blessings. Now, with all this in mind, I hope that you can see that there is nothing more important in this life than believing in Jesus Christ for salvation and then following him the rest of your life as one of his disciples. We're saved. We're justified. Now it's time to live the sanctified life and follow him. Obey the law. Obey scripture. Find a good Bible-believing church. If you look to Jesus and his redemption by faith, you will immediately possess an amazing, almost unfathomable salvation. Your sin, guilt, condemnation, and life of total futility and hostility to God is forever gone. In the place of that lost state is justification, reconciliation, peace with God, holiness, and life everlasting. Your life of futility and wickedness is replaced by service toward Christ and his kingdom. Life has meaning. You see all these people and they, they become super successful as actors or as rock musicians or whatever. And uh, they get filthy rich and then they're all miserable and they're take, shooting heroin and doing all this. Their life doesn't have any meaning. You have to have Christ to have meaning. You have to have Christ to have purpose. <clears throat> if you have not already done so, now is the time to repent and turn to Christ. Romans 10, 9 to 11, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no such thing as a secret believer. You have to confess him. And you have to confess him to repent. Those old friends have to go. Those old friends you know, who want to go out and get some beer and sort some coke and smoke some weed and pick up chicks, that's all gone. You've got to throw that in the, right in the trash. You have to confess Christ before men. You have to live your faith faithfully. You're not saved by that. Not one iota. You're saved solely by Christ. But once you bow the knee to Christ and you believe in him, it's time to follow him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your son. Lord, cause us. We do not appreciate your salvation as we really ought to. Cause us to appreciate it every moment of every day. Show us. Teach us by the Spirit and your word to love your Son more deeply and to be more and more obedient and to regard your kingdom first in all things that we would be faithful Christians, faithful to your covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.